welcome to episode 20 of the Underground Christian Podcast, the sensible Christian resource for sensible Christians. Uh, Now, wait a minute. Didn't this podcast just leave off last time at episode 17? Well, yes, astute listener of Arcane Podcasts, you're right. I have elected to skip episodes 18 and 19 in order to synchronize the numbering system to what's listed on the podcast site. It seems that the AI algorithm counted my two Christmas specials in the numbering system, which makes sense if you're a computer. To keep everything orderly, I decided to correct this disparity and make the episode numbering podcast number the same. So no, you haven't missed two episodes. For those who are newish here, we've been examining what the Bible means when it speaks about the world and our collective responsibility as Christians to withdraw from it. Jesus' brother James had this to say about the world. You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So here in James 4.4, he likens the world to an adulterer, which is a serious biblical charge, primarily because God takes it seriously. In fact, in Leviticus 20.10, God had this to say about the practice of adultery. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Well, that's pretty harsh, so clearly God doesn't think too much of adulterers. And no, God didn't change his mind in the New Testament. Yes, I'm aware that Jesus let the adulteress go in John chapter 8, but as usual, the people who want to brush off sin got the story all wrong. There's a completely different point that Jesus is making in that story, and the adulteress was the fortunate benefactor of that point. Jesus was not excusing adultery or the act of sinning, as he demonstrated by his final words in that exchange when he said, Now go and sin no more. That penultimate comment should be viewed more as a stern warning rather than a compassionate pat on the shoulder. So the world is equated with an adulterer. As if that was not bad enough, James says that just being friends with the world makes us an actual enemy of God. We don't need to be a close associate or a family member of the world, just a friend. And even worse, we don't even have to be an actual friend of the world to make us enemies of God. Just a potential one. We become an enemy of God when we wish to be a friend of the world. So this world thing just goes from bad to worse. Maybe John has something nicer to say about it. After all, John is the loving New Testament apostle. Love, love, love. In 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, he said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. John, what happened to all the love? Well, at least he didn't call us an enemy of God, just a loveless, lusting boaster, and a passing away one at that. That's another allusion to death. So do you get the idea that God takes our association with the world kind of seriously? So what exactly is the world? It isn't nicely defined anywhere in scripture, but we can deduce what it is by looking at some scriptures that talk about some components of the world. For example, in John 14.30, Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. So the world has a ruler. And what kind of ruler would he be, John? According to 1 John 5.19, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
So the world's ruler is an evil one, and not just any ordinary evil, but the evil one, which, of course, is Satan. So putting it all together, the world is the group of people who follow Satan's inducements to pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, which are Satan's inducements to sin. So the members of the world love to sin. In fact, you might say they live to sin because they really hate God, and they hate God because he hates sin. The real God does, anyway. These people often have their own version of God, one that looks a lot like them and likes the things they like, and they really love that one. They even named him Jesus, which can get very confusing for some people. But it really isn't if you just pay attention to what they love. It should be obvious that their Jesus is a fraud. Paul summed it up pretty well when he spoke about the members of the world in Romans chapter 1. He said, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do all those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That is a pretty good description of the world today. Not many members of the world exhibit all of these characteristics simultaneously, but they exhibit some of them constantly. They embrace sin internally and practice sin externally, and by doing so, make themselves odious to God because sin is an act of rebellion against God. Lifestyles of unrepentant sin reject God's holy values and show contempt for his sovereign authority. So it is through sin lifestyles that Satan can exert the greatest control over the members of the world. And as we saw in previous episodes, Satan and his demonic army have the ability to influence the actions of receptive people, and he uses those people to wield destructive weapons of warfare against God. That makes the world a weapon of both physical and spiritual warfare. The world, in essence, is the organized social, political, economic, and military system that was created by Satan to advance his strategic goals and deploy his tactics in his fight against God. Jesus, through the Bible, explicitly commands his followers to stop having anything to do with the world because it's in rebellion against God. In John 8:12, Jesus likens the world to darkness as opposed to himself, whom he likens to light. It says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Walking is a euphemism for living life. Jesus constitutes light, which is righteous living in accordance with God's will. It isn't the natural way we would choose to live, which is why we need Jesus to shed light and lead our way. When he's not around us spiritually, we revert to our preferred sinful lifestyles, which constitutes darkness. When the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa to make his defense of Christianity in Acts 26, he made sure to make this connection. He told the king about an encounter he had had with the once dead but now alive Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
Jesus confronted Paul in a blaze of blinding light as he roamed around looking for Christians to persecute. Rather than incinerate Paul to ashes, Jesus elected to recruit him to become an apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus told him, I am Jesus. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So here Jesus equates darkness with the power of Satan and light to God. By implication, both the Jews and the Gentiles were part of the darkness and would be against Paul if he started preaching about Jesus. He was going to need deliverance. This is why Paul said later in Ephesians 5.11, We are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. The works of darkness are unfruitful for Christians, since we fight for God, and darkness is the realm commanded by Satan. The idea is that we are to have no fellowship with anything that helps Satan, and that includes hanging out with the people who do the helping. And just in case you still think that darkness and the world are two different things, listen to these verses. We start out with the command of 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Love here is agape, meaning we are not to do things sacrificially for the sake of the world or the things that are part of it. We expand on that idea in Romans 12.2, where it commands us, Do not conform to the patterns of the world. Why not? Because in John 1 John 5.4, it says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. So if you're on God's side, you have overcome the world by escaping from it. And what will be the result of your overcoming the world? Jesus told us that in John 16.33. In this world, you will have trouble. The world doesn't like Houdinis who escape from it, which is why Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17.15, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So the trouble ultimately comes from Satan. But some of you clever folks might imagine that you can avoid trouble if you just mind your own business and get along with the worldly people. You might want to rethink that based on Paul's advice in 2 Corinthians 10.3, where it says, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. And that last idea is the key. Let's start with what it does not mean. It does not mean that the world is at war and we are not. It means that we are at war with the world. We will have trouble because, unlike the popular teaching of many pastors today, Christ does not call Christians to embrace moral and spiritual equivalence with human philosophies and false religions. And it does not call us to a life of non-judgmental pacifism. That calling is for Mahatma Gandhi. Christ expects his followers to wage war on his behalf against the world and the things of the world because that's the job he gave us. We are to be a light shining brightly from a hill, and lights can be really annoying when someone wants to go to sleep. We are to wage war because the world is waging war against God and Jesus. It's just that we're to do it differently than the world does very differently. Satan trains his forces to use the skills and capabilities he has, and Jesus trains his forces to use the skills and capabilities he has. The skills and capabilities of these two leaders are as different as darkness and light. Jesus is a military commander, and he said in Matthew 10, 34-36, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. 
And just in case you don't quite get what Jesus is talking about, he clarified it in the next three verses, where he draws a line of loyalty clearly in the sand. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, if you take the side of the world and don't do the things that Christ calls you to do as a soldier of Christ, then you are not worthy of the calling, and you will certainly not receive the benefits of the calling. That is a very harsh but also very clear truth. We Christians are soldiers, and we are called to fight. We don't fight using our own abilities, but the weapons and capabilities that our commander gives to us. In war, there are casualties, and this war is no different than the others. Satan's people fight with his weapons, and Christians are to fight with Christ's weapons. Now, at this point, you're probably assuming I'm going to flit over to Ephesians and talk about the armor of God. As important as Ephesians 6 is, that section of scripture is inappropriate here because it's talking about armor, not weapons. Armor is a protective covering. Yes, Paul mentions a weapon in that section of scripture, but it's mentioned in the context of armor or of defense. But Pete, dude, didn't you just tell us last week not to use weapons against the government? Um, kinda. I suggested that it might be a bad idea to raise a modern firearm against a government law enforcer, especially if you don't have a sizable military force to back you up. But while every firearm is a weapon, not every weapon is a firearm. So let me define what I mean by a weapon. Merriam-Webster has a workable definition. A weapon is something used to injure, defeat, or destroy. Now, we tend to think of weapons as tools used to damage or destroy physical objects, including people's bodies, but the definition extends beyond that. It can also refer to damaging or destroying such things as reputations, relationships, families, organizations, communications, transportation, production, morality, and truth. We live in an era that has all kinds of weapons and engages in all kinds of warfare. The most well-known kind of warfare is kinetic warfare. That's when weapons of physical destruction are deployed and used against people and things. There are many kinds of weapons that destroy by kinetic energy, including knives, clubs, rifles, artillery, tanks, rockets, missiles, bombs, grenades, explosive devices, mines, and many others. Then there are weapons that destroy using various forms of energy, like sound waves, laser beams, and directed energy weapons that concentrate an intense microwave beam on a small target area. There are chemical weapons that work by poisoning, burning, or asphyxiating people. There are nuclear weapons, which are just scaled-up kinetic weapons with the added destructive benefit of radiation. There are biological weapons that attack the cellular or genetic structures of living organisms in order to sicken or end human or animal life. And there are electromagnetic pulse weapons that destroy electronic devices and energy distribution systems. Those are some common categories of physical weapons, but there's another category of weapons that gets much less attention. It's the unconventional weapon. This category of weapon includes cyber weapons that attack computer, financial, and computer systems, electronic weapons that disrupt, alter, or block communications, radars, tracking systems, and remote sensing devices, economic weapons that disrupt banking and trade systems, destabilize supply chains, degrade credit and monetary systems, and work to concentrate wealth into the hands of an increasingly small group of people. There are climate modification weapons that manipulate local or regional atmospheric conditions to induce damaging or disruptive weather patterns. And there are atmospheric dispersive weapons that block solar radiation to keep it from reaching the Earth's surface. 
there are electioneering weapons that make sure one or more selected candidates always win elections. Some people have even heard of psychological weapons or psyops that manipulate individual and group perceptions to induce desired behaviors. Governments love to deploy propaganda weapons that promote a particular ideology or political viewpoint and discredit any opposition viewpoint. And our institutions of higher education particularly love philosophical weapons that damage or destroy social structures, national cohesion, and moral values. These kinds of unconventional warfare weapons are much harder to perceive than conventional warfare weapons because they are hidden from sight and don't make big messy piles of rubble. The public gets used to them and often won't believe they're under attack unless someone in authority tells them they are. But unfortunately, it's the ones in authority, including academia and the media, who usually deploy and use these kinds of weapons against an unsuspecting and generally oblivious civilian population. As a result, people across the world are regularly victims of unconventional warfare practices which are very effective and therefore very popular weapons of choice for people who want to destroy things without being really obvious about it. So those are some of the weapons that Satan likes to use. Now, when I was in the Army, we were provided flashcards as an aid in identifying military vehicles and aircraft of the enemy. Unlike in the movies, real military equipment does not advertise to which country it belongs because that makes it too easy for the enemy to spot and destroy. Sometimes the difference between living and dying in a war can be just a few moments of indecision, so every advantage is taken to camouflage and disguise friendly equipment and identify enemy equipment. If we're to be good soldiers for Christ, then we need to spot the weapons that the world uses to attack Christ so we can neutralize them. We need to withdraw from the world so we don't participate in its attacks against our own side. As I've said in past episodes, withdrawing from the world is easy until we're asked to withdraw from something that we love, like sports, music, or entertainment. That's when the excuses and the rationalizations get whipped out. As important as withdrawing from the world is, it's equally important that we attack the weapons of the enemy using the weapons that Jesus provides, primarily truth. We are expected to know about both kinds of these weapons. So do you? Can you name one tangible weapon of the enemy? Who and what are the enemies who wield these weapons? Can you identify any of them? If the answer is no, then you probably don't even know that we're in a war. Christians often fall prey to a fundamental principle of warfare that was first articulated by Chinese general Sun Tzu. It is that all warfare is based on deception. Oftentimes, the deception is simply that we're not in a war. But if we start to suspect that something is not right, the next deception will usually be to distract us with a crisis that focuses our attention away from the real cause of our problems. When we are susceptible to either of these deceptions, we're likely putting ourselves into a position to succumb to principle of warfare number two. The opportunity to defeat an enemy is provided by the enemy himself. When we can't recognize our own enemy, when we can't recognize how it is manipulating the situation to its advantage, then we leave ourselves open to destructive forces that will turn us against Christ and in alignment with the world. We will end up switching sides by default, and that leads us directly to the third warfare principle. Good fighters put themselves beyond the possibility of defeat and then wait for an opportunity to defeat the enemy. If we stay in darkness, our position becomes increasingly degraded. At some point, we are no longer able to effectively fight the enemy. We will place ourselves into a position where we have no ability to fight. 
At that point, the enemy can strike at will to secure our defeat. But Christ, you say, can't be defeated. Well, that might be true, but we can be. Our families can be. Our sons and our daughters can be. Christ will always keep a remnant, but why do you think the remnant will include us if we can't even name an enemy of Christ, much less do anything about it? Many Christians today believe they have peace and safety when they are actually at war and in grave danger. So in the time we have remaining, let's hear what one of the leaders of this world has to say about her plans, and then see if we can discern an enemy somewhere. As we've been noticing in past episodes, people love to be entertained. They wait all year to take a vacation somewhere or see things or experience things that they don't normally get to see and experience. Kids particularly love to take vacations, especially if they're at theme parks like Six Flags, SeaWorld, and Disney. And parents especially love Disney, that corporate icon of wholesome child entertainment. After all, it's a company that has made it its business to captivate and educate young children through entertaining videos and television programming. So it might be insightful to listen to a short two-minute audio recording of Carrie Burke, the current president of Walt Disney Corporation, talking to her colleagues about the direction she wants the company to take regarding children's programming. It's not really a new direction, but it is a newly disclosed direction. So let's take a listen. I'm here as a mother of of two queer children, actually. Um, uh, One transgender child. um, and one pansexual child, um, and and also as a leader. Um, and that was the thing that really got me because I have heard so much from so many of my colleagues over the course of the last couple of weeks um, in open forums and through emails and phone conversations. And um, I feel a responsibility to speak, um, not just for myself, but for them, uh, to all of us. We, we, had a, we had an open forum last week at 20th where um, again, the home of, of really incredible groundbreaking LGBTQIA stories over the years where um, one of our execs stood up and said, you know, we only have a handful of queer leads in our content. And I went, what? I, that can't be true. And I, and I, and I realized, oh, it, it actually is true. We have many, many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories. And 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 yet we don't have enough leads um, and narratives in which gay characters just just get to be characters um, and and not have to be about gay stories. And so um, that's been very eye opening for me. Um, and and I I can tell you um, it's something that I feel perhaps had this moment not happened. Um, I, as a leader, and me as my colleagues, would not have focused on. And and going forward, um, I, I certainly will be more so. I know that we will be. And um, and I hope this is a moment where, shoot, um, the fifty percent of the tears, <laughs> sorry, are coming. Um, uh, we don't. We just don't allow each other to go backwards. Now, some of you might say, "So what?" What's the big deal? Christians are supposed to be inclusive and loving and affirming and kind and considerate, and that's just what Carrie and Disney want to do. If you think that being a supporter of LGBTQIA makes you any of those things, then perhaps you should take a little closer look at what you're supporting from the perspective of God. Let's start by taking this little acronym apart and see what God has to say about it. 
The L stands for lesbian, which at least is a proper description of what it means, as opposed to the G, which stands for gay. The G is a created term for homosexual. It makes the act sound kind of fun and joyful. Words that are designed to appeal to emotion and deflect from truth are usually propaganda terms. I prefer to stay away from propaganda and use the proper descriptors. So, lesbians and homosexuals are people who are attracted to the same gender. That might seem like an obvious statement, but today nothing is really obvious. The LGBT crowd wants you to think there are somewhere between 70 and 200 genders, but there are actually only two genders, according to God in Genesis 1.27, where it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. By the way, the term man is not disrespectful to females. It simply means mankind or humanity or people. It includes both genders, male and female, and is therefore inclusive. A problem has arisen because the term gender has been kidnapped and compelled to mean something other than its original meaning. It has been captured by a kind of verbal cult, sort of like Patricia Hearst if you're old enough to get that reference. It used to mean male and female but it's been forced to mean the embracing and personalizing of whatever sexual lifestyle seems good to a person. Obviously, a sexual lifestyle is not the same thing as a biological gender, which is why the kidnappers felt the need to create another new term called biological sex that would substitute for the old term gender. But even that term they have obfuscated and muddled. The reason the doctors of old, say three or four years ago, could tell you the gender of your baby is that gender is based on genitalia. Gender. Genitals. You see? You don't have to be a biologist to tell the difference between a boy and a girl, which is why humanity did quite well with it until the woke cult propagandists seized control of the language. These days, we have to wait to ask the young tykes what gender they are, which makes sense if you're trying to discern their sexual proclivities, but makes no sense if you want to know how to categorize them as part of the human race. To make people more confused, the activists claim that there are people who naturally have both male and female sexual components. They call such people intersex. They don't usually mention that the number of these people, as a percentage of the population, is vanishingly small, or that they have malformed and dysfunctional parts, but instead imply that there's some kind of broad spectrum of sexual gender. This is not only a diabolical lie, it's bad science as well. We scientists do not make a rule out of exceptions, particularly when the exceptions are caused by defects. You see, I speak truth here at Underground Christian, and the truth is that intersex people were born with defects. That means they were born with something that is not normal and probably does not work as designed. The woke cultists have done everything in their collective power to eliminate the word normal from our vocabulary because that word will expose their irrational beliefs and nefarious intentions for what they are. It's therefore a dangerous word to them and must be banished from the language. But the term normal has a very long and honorable history in both language and science, and it is an essential concept for everyone who is not weaponized language. As Christians, we don't have to read very far into the Bible to find out that God only made two genders, and science concurs at the biological level. Science also tells us that there are a handful of mistakes that come out of this creative process, just like in most creative processes. Some people are born without arms, but we would not say that armless people are part of a broad spectrum of arm normality. Now, I'm glad that we have doctors who can sometimes help people who are born with abnormalities so they can become somewhat less burdened by them. But the rule is that we don't make rules out of exceptions. 
So there are two genders. That is the first point. The second point to consider is what we do with these two genders. What are they for? Well, God clarified that in Genesis 1.28, the very next sentence, where it says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Oh, so here God created two genders in order to multiply. Most people really enjoy trying to multiply, which is why we have so many people. God did that on purpose, so we would multiply fruitfully. If it felt bad to multiply, or even if it felt neutral, there would be a lot less multiplying going on, so this was a good feature that God built into humanity. Again, God doesn't make things too hard for regular people to understand. Two genders, multiply. Very simple. So what do we do with the LG part of the acronym? It should be obvious that two L's or two G's cannot multiply. I know this can be a difficult concept for the modern woke person to accept, but, you know, there it is. Biology. Take a class. So on the face of it, one might suspect that God would have a problem with LG, since this is not what gender was made to do. It's kind of like taking the reward for multiplying without taking any of the responsibility for it. It's also kind of like stealing, at least if you believe that God made people. I suppose if we emerged out of a primordial slime, then maybe it is not so much like stealing, but I'm speaking to Christians here. If you still don't see that God is against LG, just from the practical aspect of what gender is for, then you should know that God helpfully made it very clear in Leviticus 20.13, among several other places, when he said, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Well, that's certainly clear, and it's pretty firm. There's not too much wiggle room to reimagine that statement. I get the G, the homosexual part, but what about the L, the woman part? That passage speaks of men. Well, over in Romans 1.26, Paul writes, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. He then goes on to reiterate the shame of homosexuality and equate the same acts whether they are from men or women. Now, maybe you don't like Paul, and maybe you don't like this line of thought. After all, the LGs don't hurt anyone, and they love each other. You might be tempted to think it isn't fair to pick on them. Well, I hate to be harsh, but these are all invalid points that arise out of the sin embedded in human nature. If you choose to disregard the Bible, or treat the Bible as if it's not the word of God, but the fallible word of man, then something other than God has become your standard of reference, and you have joined the world. Congratulations! This is one example of the kind of warfare we're engaged in. Making human sexuality all about our feelings and desires and nothing about God is spiritual warfare brought down to a very practical level for a very practical purpose. It's a weapon to be wielded against God's people to undermine and destroy their loyalty to God and pervert his creation. In the modern era, the philosophical weapon of sexual lifestyle is supported by several other weapons that are directed against any enemy who has the audacity to stand up and oppose it. These weapons include public shaming, online deplatforming, lawfare, job loss, credit damage, governmental fines, and even physical attacks. But this is America, you scream. What happened to free speech and civil discourse? Well, warfare happened. As God said, there is no peace. Peace is just an illusion that is designed to disarm you and strengthen your enemy. So let's move on to the next letter, LGB, bisexual. It means you can go either way. 
Well, obviously, if the LG is wrong in God's eyes, then the B also has got to be wrong for the same reasons. In fact, it's even more wrong because it violates yet another tenet of godly sexuality in that it virtually requires sexual participation with more than one person, or else there's not really any point to the B. That, at a minimum, is called fornication, and it might possibly expand into adultery, both of which are roundly condemned by God in the Bible. The next letter is T, and this is where the sexual debasement movement goes from guerrilla warfare to major power conflict. Transgenderism demands that people have the ability and the right to change their gender appearance and tinker with their biochemistry based on their whim or feelings. I say appearance because no amount of surgery or chemicals can physically change the actual gender of a person. This letter is a direct assault on the sovereignty of God and the sanctity of his human design. It is a tool used to degrade the human body even more than homosexuality does, and to teach people that it's in our power to become whatever version of human that we desire. It's also the avenue through which a much more sinister weapon will be deployed, a weapon that will attempt to totally usurp the authority to create human life by empowering a handful of human beings to make creational decisions. Part of the preparation for that day includes a concerted effort to make people androgynous, meaning that they will not identify with any particular sexuality or gender. That's the goal, but we aren't quite there yet. That's a more advanced weapon for a later time. So how effective has the LGBT weapon become? So effective that many churches have decided to surrender rather than face the consequences of resistance, even if only a mild passive resistance. These churches have embraced the gay transgender agenda and have induced many professing Christians to do the same thing. They've chosen to join the world on this one, and by doing so, have sided with Satan in opposition to God. I'll be gracious and attribute their motives to a misplaced sense of kindness and compassion, but in truth it's neither kind nor compassionate. True kindness and compassion involves acknowledging that people have sinful urges, and that sinful urges, when acted upon, place them in conflict with God. That really should not be the least bit difficult to grasp or to teach as a church. Even the church of Satan knows that much. People with sinful sexual urges should not be treated any better or any worse than any other person with sinful urges. And since we all have sinful urges, we need to treat people with different sinful urges with compassion and kindness. However, the compassion and kindness are not for the sin, but for the person who is learning about sin or trying to overcome the sin. Sexual sinners need the same three things that every other kind of sinner needs, including all the ones sitting in church. They need repentance, the blood of Christ to cover the sin, and the grace of God to forgive and heal through sanctification. Sanctification is a process that is long and difficult, but all sinners have to go through it. Before we can go through sanctification, though, we need the knowledge of sin and the blood of Christ to cover it. What we don't need is an affirmation of sin ceremony. The result of misplaced kindness is a worldwide pandemic not of mysterious germs that have emerged from a bioweapons lab in China, but of rampant and unrepentant sin that will escort the practitioners to eternal condemnation if they don't do something about it. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus, a church that is generally commended for its labor, patience, and rejection of evil. But Jesus also said, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Now, don't get thrown by the lampstand. 
It's just a symbol of church authority and Christian salvation. The important point is the first love was lost. In a real church, the first love is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ evangelically because that's how churches establish themselves and grow. The very first part of the gospel is the acknowledgement of sin because sinners have to know that they have an insurmountable problem they need help with. The second part of the gospel is presenting Christ as the means of salvation so that sinners can repent of sin and believe in, which means have confidence in, the only one who can help them, who is Jesus. A church that will not recognize a sin so bold and aggressive that it directly challenges God's authority as both the lawgiver and the biological creator is a church that cannot correctly instruct even the first part of the gospel. It is a church that has left its first love. It is a church that Christ himself says he will destroy. And he doesn't mean the building. He means the members of the church at the judgment. There is not going to be any free pass into Christ's kingdom. The LGBT agenda is evil, and the church has a moral obligation to stand up to it with courage and determination and not cower in fear and trepidation at their saber-rattling, even when they growl and insult and threaten and attack. The church universal is commanded to stand against evil regardless of the cost. The corruption of the human soul will not stop with transgenderism and people's freedom to sexually mutilate themselves in any way desirable. That's just a step. It will grow still more lurid and depraved with each passing year, if not each month. It already has in its sight the popularization of animal and child sexual exploitation, and it's already on the verge of adding sex with robots and metaverse eroticism to the mix. There is literally nothing so low that they think it should be labeled perversion. They have adopted in attitude, if not on paper, the motto of the Church of Satan, which is, Do as thou wilt. And in doing so, they have elevated perversion from the gutter to a form of heroism. Meanwhile, Disney executives joyfully plot to bring overtly depraved forms of sexual expression to children's programming on a TV near you. Do you want this kind of propaganda to be mainstreamed? Disney's senior management has condemned the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis for passing a law that Disney and the LGBT activists call the Don't Say Gay Bill. It took a little while of wading through article after propaganda article to find the real name of the bill, which is the Parental Rights in Education Bill. As usual, the activists inside and outside of the mainstream media smear the name of the bill to create an artificial sense of outrage over what it does not really say. Smear campaigns are also weapons. The law makes it illegal for schools and educators to expose small children up to third grade with this kind of noxious sexual indoctrination. After third grade, the law says nothing, so I guess they can indoctrinate away from that point on. The inability to legally indoctrinate captive little children in public schools with this kind of unnatural filth, little children who should be protected from all kinds of child exploitation, that drew the ire of activist Disney executives. Its president said publicly that Disney is going to put these weapons of spiritual warfare in their movies and on television productions so that they can specifically target young children. Do you want to know what it looks like to withdraw from the world? It looks something like this. Stop feeding Disney and its corporate entities with your money, your attention, and your love. Do not have any fellowship with this kind of darkness. You and your children don't need it. Just withdraw. Is that uncomfortable for you? Is it sad? Well, while you're pondering that, 
Take out your handy-dandy iPhone and Google Mickey Mouse Signature Trademark. Find a picture of it. It will be the cursive one. Hold it up to a mirror, and you might need to turn the phone upside down. Then read what it says. That is what Disney is all about, and what it has been about for many decades. It just hides it in plain sight. Do you want to fight evil? Then withdraw your financial and physical support from the companies that openly declare warfare against your children. Do you think it isn't that important? Well, consider this. The occupier-in-chief in the Oval Office has directed Kristen Clark, Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights in the United States Department of Justice, to pursue criminal charges against any doctor or hospital that takes government money but refuses to chop off private parts and chemically castrate children whenever they want it or their parents want it. They want the doctors to lose their license for not going along with medical mutilation, and there does not seem to be any age limit to this decree. Is this the kind of thing you want to support? This is the logical outgrowth of this cultic war against God. Separating from overtly evil companies does not mean you can't have anything to do with any company that does stupid things. But we can learn to recognize which companies are essentially nothing but weapons of war that are hurtling destruction at God and his people. The culture war is called a war for a reason. The best weapons are the fun ones, the weapons that people run towards so they can express their sin openly, boldly, and enthusiastically. When the weapons make it a choice between the new and explicit and exciting and exotic versus the old and modest and quiet and traditional, you know, youth versus age, rebellion versus harmony, intoxication versus sobriety, well, guess which ones the people of the world usually run to? Christians have a duty to draw a line in the sand regarding God's commands and his authority as a creator, a line that is clear and unambiguous, and then we have a duty to defend it. That is the whole point of borders. They demarcate a boundary between our territory and their territory so that the evil influences from without do not penetrate to the interior. Christian soldiers have a duty to know the location of the border of Christ's territory and then to defend it. Do you want to see an example of what will happen when borders are not defended? Check out the mess that's the southern border of the United States. There are criminal syndicates trafficking drugs, guns, children, and women openly and freely across the border. In fact, our government is all but erecting coffee stands along their routes. While the rest of us were locked down in fear of viruses under the threat of professional and economic ruin if we didn't submit to getting the magic potion of Pfizer, the U.S. government was busily shuttling hundreds of thousands of unvaccinated, illegal aliens around the country by bus and aircraft to undisclosed locations for undisclosed purposes. Now, you might wonder how it is possible for undocumented aliens to get on aircraft in America when you have to produce half of your personal identifications and strip naked before you're allowed to walk into a terminal. Well, it turns out they were given special governmental dispensations. I'll just put it out there that, conventionally, any act to erase borders and facilitate a mass invasion of a country would be considered an act of war. But we obviously don't live in conventional times. Still, I think it's worth asking... When the so-called President of the United States and his administration does everything in their considerable power to erase the southern border and facilitate the distribution of COVID-infected aliens around the country, when thousands of unaccompanied children are distributed to unidentified persons all around the country, whose side is this administration really working for? 
we Christians have invaded a world that belongs to Satan for the express purpose of establishing a foothold for Christ's kingdom that will, soon enough, come physically to the earth. But Satan is not like Uncle Joe. Satan knows the importance of borders and the meaning of violating them. Jesus said the gates of hell will not stop him from building his church, so Satan will not be able to keep the church out. Yet, the last time I checked, Jesus was not walking around in Jerusalem. That means the territory we hold, both physical and spiritual, will come under constant attack by Satan's considerable army of destroyers until that time. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who calls Christians to defend his borders wherever they are established. So, are we going to defend them? If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, or possibly even entertaining, please recommend it to someone you know who might benefit by it. Give it a thumbs up or a happy face or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Please pray for this podcast to reach more people and help them personally and spiritually. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, like the one you're using, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and get ready to do the work of God. Oh, and, and look for those weapons and try to identify some of them and who's wielding them so that we can um, respond to that and we'll maybe talk about some weapons that we can use next week. But the big one is truth. <laughs>